Um, I want to read through sections of 1 Kings 7. Uh, this is uh, 1 Kings uh, 6 through 8 is the section of uh, 1 Kings that deals with the construction of the, and design of the temple. These are the central chapters in the Solomon narrative. The Solomon narrative goes from basically from chapter 1, depending on how you, how you start it. He's, Solomon is in the picture in chapter 1. Uh, if you take chapters 3 through 11, that forms a unit. Uh, and chapter 6 through 8, the temple building is the central or the central chapters. So uh, Solomon's, uh, if you look at my King's commentary, I have a, I'm pretty sure I, I have a chiastic outline of the Solomon narrative in Kings, and the temple is at the center. And the center of the temple, uh, of the temple uh, description is uh, the beginning of chapter 7. Okay. So I want to start there and look at that and then look at a few other things. Uh, one of the things I'm, I'm wanting to highlight as we go through this is the, um, the fact that the temple represents the reality of Israel architecturally, and it's also a, an architectural representation of Israel's role in the world and Israel's uh, place and mission among the nations, among the Gentiles. So uh, that's what I want to fill out as we go through this. Uh, architecture, uh, let me just back up and say this. Architecture is uh, quite important in the Bible. We have a number of very lengthy, very detailed sections of the Bible that are descriptions of, architect, uh, of buildings and the furnishings of buildings. Um, from Exodus 25 to the end of Exodus, Exodus 40, most of that is description of the tabernacle. The, the golden calf incident happens in the middle of that, but that's 15 chapters, roughly uh, 11 of them or 12 of them are about the tabernacle. We've got uh, this section of Kings that are, that's about the temple. We've got uh, sections of First Chronicles and Second Chronicles that are descriptions of the temple that overlap with kings. The last eight chapters of Ezekiel are a description of the visionary temple that Ezekiel sees. Um, this is Ezekiel prophesying at the time of the exile. He's uh, prophesying about what will happen in the exile and the vision of the, and he's envisioning a new temple uh, uh, that will be built after the exile. But what he, what he sees is not the actual temple that gets built, but he sees a visionary version of it. All of these are extremely detailed architectural descriptions of buildings and furniture. And then the New Testament uh, passage that's closest to this is the very last part of Revelation, uh, the revelation of New Jerusalem, particularly from uh, Revelation 21.9 through Revelation 22.5, a, a fairly detailed description of the New Jerusalem which is described as a city, it's a bride, and it's, but it's a city that has, be, it's, a, it's a temple, excuse me, basically a temple that's grown up into a city. So the city has features of the temple. So um, uh, that's, those, are, those are large chunks of text. You know, a uh, total of, I don't know how many, how many chapters that would be, 30, 30, 40 chapters of the Bible are devoted to architectural concerns and descriptions of architecture. So uh, 
uh, these are important to God, and I think they're important partly because of the way that architecture symbolizes uh, who Israel is and uh, symbolizes uh, what Israel is supposed to be in the world. Okay. And we can uh, uh, think about that. I, think that, uh, I, don't think our, uh, I don't think our church architecture should resemble temple architecture. Apparently, uh, uh, Josh has told me I, uh, that the uh, construction of Orthodox churches in Ethiopia very much resembles the construction of Old Testament sanctuaries. Old Testament sanctuaries are places of gathering, places for festivity, but also places of exclusion. Only the priests go into the holy place. Only the priests actually go into the building in uh, Solomon's temple. The, the people are always outside. Um, that's not a new covenant building. Okay, the new covenant building, the new covenant, new covenant architecture is founded on what happens at the cross, which is the tearing of the veil. Um, and uh, at the death of Jesus and in his resurrection, uh, he's made a way for us to go into the inner sanctuary. So uh, we shouldn't try to replicate these, these, uh, these archi this architecture. I think when we go into church, you know, if you go into a church where the Lord's Supper is being celebrated, what do you see? You see an open Bible on the pulpit. You see bread and wine laid out on the table. Uh, you see a minister, uh, a, a pastor, standing to preach. I think what you're seeing is the New Covenant version of what is inside the Most Holy Place. The Most Holy Place had the Ark of the Covenant. It's the place of the presence of the glory. What's inside the Ark of the Covenant? Ten Commandments. Aaron's rod. Third thing. Can't, can't hear you. Bread, yes, the manna. There's a jar of manna. Bread, word, staff. If you come into a church and you see bread and wine, you see a Bible, you see a, a minister, you're in the most holy place. The veil has been opened. Uh, those gifts of God were hidden inside the most holy place, in, inside the ark, under the old covenant. The great blessing of the new covenant is that they're not hidden anymore. The mystery has been revealed. And all those gifts of God, the gift of a completed word, the gift of bread and wine, the gift of ministers who are equipped by the Spirit, shepherds who are equipped by the Spirit, those are freely given. Uh, that's what, to, um, that's the way, and our architecture should ref reflect that rather than having an architecture of exclusion that keeps people away from uh, what uh, the gifts of God. So, uh, so I say all that, uh, there's, there's a radical difference between what the ancient sanctuaries of Israel, how they were designed and how uh, the uh, churches are to be designed. At the same time, there's at least this continuity that uh, should think about insofar as we're able to do it, uh, practically, financially, and so on. The temples of the Old Testament represented the calling of Israel and the reality of Israel. And I think it's good for church buildings to represent architecturally, symbolic, in symbolic architecture, uh, the truth about the church. Um, 
you know, one way, you, one way uh, churches have done that is by um, putting a garden imagery in the sanctuary or the, or the place of worship. A reminder that when we come into the presence of God, we are entering into uh, the Garden of Eden. We're coming back where Adam, Adam was excluded. The last Adam takes us back in. And we get a taste of that. There's a, there's a final garden city that's going to come at the end. But we're already getting a taste of it now. And our church architecture should reflect that. Okay. So uh, against that background, let's look at uh, a few sections of 1 Kings 7. I'm going to have you read again. Um, Sammy, could you begin uh, with uh, the first eight verses of 1 Kings 7? Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, so as I said, this uh, chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 7, is the center of the temple description in Kings. But it's not a describing part of the temple. It's describing Solomon's uh, uh, official buildings, his his palace, uh, a hall of pillars, and a hall of the throne, a hall of judgment. Okay. So, first question, uh, what do you make of the fact that in the midst of a description of Solomon's, uh, Solomon building God's house, there's a description of Solomon building his own house? Right, he wanted to build the Lord's house, true. What's the Lord's answer to that when David says, I want to build a house? You can't build it because you're, you're right. Okay, that's, that's the uh, Chronicles, First uh, Chronicles 17, that's the, that's the reason that's given. But in Second Samuel 7, which is the other, the parallel passage, and in First Chronicles 17, part of the response is, you're not going to build me a house, I'll build you a house. Right. Now what, is, what does the Lord mean when he says, I'll build you a house? Correct. Uh, the Lord is going to build David a people house, a dynasty of kings. Uh, and then the Lord goes on to say, your son will build me a house. But the Lord builds his house first. That's primary. And then the son will build the house to, the, to God. Okay. So... Um, yeah, so uh, uh, I guess I guess you could you'd see a somewhat of a difference from David, but uh, Solomon is building the Lord's house. Uh, think of, think about the think about the uh, covenant with David and what I talked about yesterday as the central um, the central novelty or innovation of the Davidic covenant, and that has to do with the identity of the Son. Remember. Talking about this, in, in, in Exodus, the son is Israel. Israel is my son, let my son go. In the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, your son will be my son. The Davidic king is the embodiment of the people of Israel. <coughs> He's the people of Israel in person. So Solomon is uh, not just David's son, but he's Yahweh's son. And I think the, the, the reason for including the building of his own palace complex in the construction of the temple is because he's, he's allowed, he's privileged to live next door to his father, 
His father is Yahweh. He's been adopted as Yahweh's son. Yahweh, the father, and the high king has a palace. And then Yahweh's prince, King Solomon, has his palace next door. So uh, I, I, this is often read as a, as a flaw in Solomon's plan, that he, that he puts his own house so close to the temple. I think it's actually a sign of Solomon's stature and the stature of the kings of Israel, kings of Judah, that they have their house right next to Yahweh's house. What about the construction of these official buildings? Does any of that sound familiar from what we were talking about before the break? Cedar. Cedar is lining the temple. Cedar is a major uh, uh, component. What's the word I'm looking for? Help me, help me. Material. Yeah, it's a simple word. I couldn't think of it. Uh, cedar is a major, main, uh, the main material, one of the main materials for the building of Solomon's house. So uh, what we have here is Solomon building the house of the forest. The house of the forest is 100 cubits long, 50 cubits wide. Its height is 30 cubits. Solomon built a house for the Lord 60 cubits with 20 cubits, height 30 cubits. The house of the forest is bigger than the temple. It's paneled with cedar. It has artistic window frames, which the temple also has. It's, uh, and then he has another hall of pillars with a porch, and then a hall of the throne, which is the hall of judgment. I think what we have here is three buildings that parallel the three sections of the temple. The temple has a porch. The temple has a house of the forest, the holy place. The temple has a throne room, the most holy place. And Solomon's, Solomon's house is not only next to Yahweh's house, but Solomon's house uh, resembles Yahweh's house. Like father, like son. The father's palace sets the model for the son's palace. Okay. I think that's the logic here. It's not, this is not a sign of uh, Solomon's pride or rebellion. I think it's, again, a, a sign of the stature of the Davidic king in uh, in Israel. Okay. Uh, Brian, could you uh, read from verse um, 13 to verse 22? 1 Kings 6 still, uh, 7 still. Okay, thank you. Uh, first uh, note that I'll highlight is uh, the, uh, the craftsman who's constructing these pillars. pillars. <coughs> I mentioned that <coughs> Uh, Solomon is, uh, or Hiram of Tyre, a Gentile king, is assisting Solomon, providing material for, that, for the temple. And now Tyre is sending, this is, a, this is not Hiram the king that's being sent, but this is another Hiram who's a craftsman who's uh, working on the temple. Uh, he is a uh, Jew Gentile, right? His... Uh, He's a widow's son from the tribe of Naphtali. His father was a man of Tyre. So he's, he has uh, Israelite and Gentile ancestry, uh, and he symbolizes the combined efforts of Jews and Gentiles 
in building the house. It's not houses, houses maintained by Israel, but it's constructed by Solomon in alliance with Gentiles. Uh, the second temple will be built with Gentile assistance too. Cyrus and the other Persian kings are going to help, um, uh, help uh, even more than Hiram does. Okay. So that's one thing to note, that this, this, is, a, this is constructed by both um, Jews and, and Gentiles. Uh, these two pillars are new items. You don't have anything like this in the tabernacle. Okay. And these two pillars are large bronze pillars, 18 cubits high. You say roughly a cubit is a foot and a half. You've got 27 feet high. That's a pretty, that's a pretty tall pillar. They're not load-bearing pillars at all. They're not part of the, they're not part of the uh, construction of the temple itself. They're decorative pillars placed on either side of the doorway uh, of the nave. So uh, if you're out in the courtyard, you're looking toward the temple, you'll see these two pillars right at the doorway. If you're entering into the temple, if you're a priest and you're going into the temple, you pass between these two pillars as you go in. Uh, and anything that you noticed about the pillars as uh, as Brian was reading? Yeah. Right. Correct. Yes. Yeah. 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 They're made of bronze, so that's appropriate to the courtyard. As I as I said before, the the courtyard is. Courtyard furnishing is made of bronze. As you move closer in toward the most holy place, you're getting, uh, you're moving toward something more uh, glorious and heavy to gold. Uh, yeah, the hollowness of the uh, of the uh, pillars. What do you what do you suspect is going on there? What would be the effect of that? Let's let's hold that for a second and think about uh, what else is on this. What else did you notice about the pillars? The capitals are described in a particular way. Twice the, the capitals are compared to lilies. They're uh, of lily design. Verse 19. The capital, uh, a capital of a pillar, that's the top, the top of a pillar. You have different kinds of designs, at least in, uh, in Western architecture, you have uh, several main kinds of design. Sometimes you have a, a kind of scroll uh, at the capital. I can't remember if that's a Dorian or Ionian. Sometimes you have uh, the top of a pillar that is decorated with uh, vines and plant-like things. I think that's a Corinthian capital. But this one looks like a like the uh, blossom of a lily. Okay. 
So one, one dimension of this is that the, these pillars look like gigantic flowers. <laughs> They're designed to be pillars that have blossoms at the top. Uh, and I think intended to uh, uh, conjure the idea that you're entering into a garden space, a, sp a, a place where uh, the lilies grow to be tw 27 feet tall. <laughs> okay. Um, the, I think that the, um, the, the hollowness has something to, probably to do with, uh, trying to find <laughs> There are chain work, there's chain work and there's pomegranates in rows. Um, I don't know if it's here or maybe somewhere else that it talks about the pomegranates that uh, would be uh, in, uh, would be uh, affected by the breeze. They would be knocking against the pillar and causing the pillar to ring. So I think part of this is a, is a, um, it's, it's designed to have a, a, a musical effect too. The pillars, the pillars are described as having um, uh, capitals, uh, the pillar itself, and then they're set in bases, uh, a three-section pillar, which is, uh, I think, intended vertically to represent what is represented, what's represented horizontally in the temple itself. So you've got the courtyard the holy place, the most holy place, the pillar you have, the base, the pillar, and the capital. So when you're looking at the pillars, uh, somebody looking at the pillars, uh, a lay Israelite is never going to go into the temple and see what it looks like inside. But you get a, a, a uh, at least a hint of the structure of the, the whole temple in the way the pillars are designed. And there's one of the things that... Uh, uh, that is the idea that the chain work up around the top uh, and the around the around the base of the capital. So you have these these chains and the pomegranates on the chains, and that kind of chain work is also part of the doorway between the holy place and the most holy place. So uh, it's as if God is bringing out uh, a, 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 some of the hidden features of the temple, which only the priests see. He's bringing them out to the outside of the temple so that all the Israelites can now get a glimpse, at least, of the structure of the whole house. Okay. That's my theory. Read uh, from verse 23. And... Uh, uh, to just to verse... Uh, yeah, just to verse 26. Um, okay. This is again something new. This is not in the uh, courtyard of the temple of the tabernacle. In the courtyard of the tabernacle, you had a laver, but this is uh, uh, called a sea. It's presumably a much bigger uh, reservoir of water. Um, it's uh, ten cubits from brim to brim, fifteen feet wide. Uh, its height is five cubits, seven and a half feet tall. This is a huge bronze basin. You can see why it would be called a sea, and it's filled with water. The water is going to be used for uh, washing, again, washing sacrifices and washing the priests for cleansing rituals. 
Um, and this giant bronze sea is elevated from the ground. The, the laver has a pedestal underneath it, but this is elevated even further on the backs of 12 bronze bowls. And the 12 bronze bowls are, are uh, divided into groups of three, with three each uh, facing every point of the compass. So let's start with the easy part of the, this, this uh, item. The 12 bowls represent the tribes of Israel. And the arrangement of three tribes in each direction. Anybody? Okay. Well, there's there's some there's some uh, links with Revelation, but. When they're in the wilderness. Ah. Okay. Yeah. The division of the land. Correct, right. So the, in, in the wilderness, uh, the tabernacle is in the center. You have the priests at the eastern gate of the temple, and then three clans of Levites on the other sides of the temple. And then further out, you have three tribes at each side of the, of the tabernacle. I said temple, the tabernacle. Okay. So this, the arrangement here resembles that, uh, that arrangement of the tribes around the tabernacle. As they're, they're, the cherubim are guardian angels. The priests are guardian human beings. They're, they have a cherubic role. And Israel as a whole has kind of a cherubic role of guarding the glory and the holiness of God and holy, the holiness of his house. Okay, so you've got 12 oxen representing the 12 tribes. And they're holding up what on their backs? A great bronze sea. What would that, what does that represent? What, what vocation of Israel might that point to? Okay. But, and, and why would they be holding up water to represent that? Okay. Are you raising your hand, Mike? Okay, it just, well, let me ask this. Um, is there any other place in the Bible where there's water that's above the ground? Right. Okay, water comes down from above, right? Yeah, but in Genesis, uh, this day two, uh, there's the, the, the whole earth is watery. And then God makes a firmament and puts water above the firmament, water below the firmament, and the firmament is the division that separates the water above and the water below. And that sets up a, a basic division in Scripture between uh, heavenly waters and earthly waters. So water that comes from above represents, uh, often represents the blessing of God falling down. I mean, literally, the blessing of rain. God sends rain to nourish the land to, you know, and the, the rain 
nourishes the land so the land can nourish everything else. Okay. You've got these heavenly waters, but then you also have ground waters. You have waters of the earth, and you have a variety of different kinds of earth waters. You have uh, the sea, you have rivers, you have springs, water that begins below ground and then springs up. Okay. And all of those have slightly different connotations and uh, kinds of symbolism in the Bible. Um, so, but this, this is water that is in a great bronze sea that's lifted up above the ground. So this is representing that, that uh, upper water. This, is, this, this uh, water is not uh, just, uh, the, the sea is not just set on the earth. So I think what the what's being represented here is that Israel has, it's do you know the do you know the figure of Atlas in Greek mythology? Atlas is the god that uh, is the Titan that you, sometimes you see him holding up the the earth on his shoulders, or you can see him holding up the sky. Okay, uh, he's the god who was he's, he's the Titan, one of the Titans that revolted against Zeus and Zeus put him in this, uh, gave him this task of holding up the sky, um, lifting up the heavenly waters. They, uh, and I think that's the kind of picture we have of Israel's role. Israel is the people that bears the heavenly waters that represent the blessings of God. Okay? They're the ones, if, if you want to get heavenly water, the water that flows from God, the life that flows from God, you go to Israel to find it. And the temple is the place where that water is symbolically present. If you want to know, if you want to receive the refreshing heavenly rains, uh, you seek that at the temple. Okay. Uh, this, bronze, uh, this bronze reservoir is called a sea. What does the sea represent in Scripture? Okay, place of death, true. Like Jonah being thrown into the sea. Goes down to the depths of the sea. And is rescued out of the sea. Okay. Good. It's dangerous, right? Yeah. So if, if you're a fisher of men, you're pulling people up from the the watery grave. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah, good. It's a barrier. Yeah. Right. Correct. Yeah. Oh. And rivers play that same role. I mean, rivers are boundaries. I mean, even, even today in the, in the United States, a lot of the state's boundaries are determined by waterways. You, right down the center of the United States, the Mississippi flows, and all the states have, on the east and west side of the, of the, uh, of the Mississippi River, have their state boundaries determined by the Mississippi. Okay, good. That's the heavenly sea, right? Yeah. That's the upper waters. Yeah. Ooh, the beast comes from the sea. Yes. 
Sea is a place of death, but the sea is also a place uh, that monsters come up from. Sea monsters. Uh, except that this sea monster in Revelation doesn't look like, he doesn't look like a fish. He's part lion, part bear, part leopard. Okay. Um, I think that that's, uh, that's uh, pointing in the direction of one, one of the major sim- symbolic dimensions of the sea in the Bible. And that is that the sea is, a, 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 it represents a place of death. It represents the world of the Gentiles. The land is the place that Israel's in. The sea is the, are the Gentiles who are constantly raging, um, constantly in turmoil. Um, we sang it, right? We sang it at the beginning of the morning. Uh, God is a refuge in strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth should change and the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. What's, that, what's the sea that's churning? The nations make an uproar, the kingdoms totter. Behold the works of the Lord, who makes, makes desolations on the earth. The churning sea of Psalm 46 uh, represents the churning and tumult, the tumult of the Gentile world. Okay. So and I think this is, uh, uh, you, you can see that sometimes the sea uh, overwhelms the land. The, the, the uh, invasion of Gentiles in the prophets is sometimes pictured as a, as a flood. Uh, Isaiah, talking about the Assyrians coming in, pictures it as a flood of water coming over the land and inundating the land. Those are the Gentiles. They're swallowing up the land of Israel and turning the land of Israel into a Gentile world, turning it into the sea. I think this is this one of the, once you get that uh, in, your, in your mind, then the transition from shepherds to fishermen uh, suddenly has a depth to it. Because the, the leaders of Israel in the Old Testament are shepherds uh, guiding land animals. The, the disciples are fishermen who are going to be sent out to the Gentile Sea. Uh, Think of how much time Paul spends on boats at the end of Acts. Suffers a shipwreck toward the end of Acts. Um, The the Israelites who go on boats in the Bible are, well, Solomon sends out ships, but that's just like one line. Jonah goes on a boat and is cast out. Uh, not many sailors in the Old Testament, but suddenly there's fishermen everywhere because we're making a transition from a land-based, Israel-centered mission to a worldwide mission. Okay. And Jonah goes to a Gentile. Yes, exactly, right. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think, I think Jonah, the story of Jonah uh, is, is playing with the symbolism of sea and land uh, a lot. And the, and the great fish that swallows him up is, you know, if, if the sea is the Gentiles, then great fish are going to be representatives of great Gentiles. At the end of Jeremiah, Nebuchadnezzar is described as being like a, a huge sea monster that keeps swallowing up all the other fish because he's, he's an imperial conqueror. Okay. 
Yeah. Yes. Yes. Right. 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 Good. Okay. So now think about uh, to the temple. Twelve oxen representing the twelve tribes of Israel holding up a sea. That's partly symbolizing Israel as the source of heavenly water, but it also shows Israel as having the uh, responsibility for uh, bearing the nations. The sea of nations is on the shoulders of Israel. It might not look like it. Okay. It looks like Israel is just kind of this minor power in the Middle East. Uh, you know, they're not one of the great empires of the ancient world. And uh, if you just look in terms of secular politics, they don't seem to play that big a role. But the temple is giving Israel a different message. The temple is telling them the Gentile sea is being lifted up on your shoulders. That's your responsibility. And you can put those two images together and say it's your responsibility, Israel, to take the heavenly waters to the nations, to the Gentiles. Um, if you look ahead to uh, Second Kings, all right, Ahaz in Second uh, Kings sixteen. Second uh, Kings sixteen seventeen. This is King Ahaz. King Ahaz is a king of the southern kingdom, uh, but he's an unfaithful king. He's the father of Hezekiah. He's an unfaithful king. Uh, verses 10 and following tell us he goes to Damascus, visits Damascus. He sees an altar there and he says, hey, I like that altar. And he comes back with uh, blueprints for an altar and he makes an altar like the altar of Damascus and puts that altar in the temple and takes the altar of the Mosaic Tabernacle, which has been in the temple, and puts it over in a corner. Okay. He's replacing the Lord's altar with an altar made after the pattern of a Gentile uh, altar. But then look at verse 17. King Ahaz cut off the borders of the stands, we're going to look at the stands in a second, and removed the labor from them. He also took down the sea from the bronze oxen which were under it and put it on a pavement of stone. Okay. Uh, practically speaking, what Ahaz is doing, I su suppose, is what many of the kings of Israel do, which is plunder the temple for treasure so they can pay off Gentile powers that are threatening them. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar plunders the temple in Jerusalem, but long before Nebuchadnezzar plunders the temple in Jerusalem, the kings of Judah had been plundering the temple for generations. Whenever an invader came in, they would take gold and bronze and silver from the temple and they'd give it to the Gentiles to pay them off so that they would leave. Okay, we'll talk about, the, uh, talk about that a little more in a second. So I think that's probably what he's doing. There's, you've got these bronze, bronze oxen there. That's a lot of bronze. Who needs them, right? Let's, let's, we can still have the labor. We need the labor because we need the water. But you don't need to have this complex system where they're lifted up on, on the backs of oxen. We'll take the oxen out. Kind of wonder how he did this. This is quite an operation. To, so this is a massive, the sea is a massive thing. And somehow he's, he's, he's taking, taking the oxen out from under it and putting it down on the ground. But what is, what is that saying about Ahaz's understanding of Israel's vocation? 
Practically speaking, I think he's just paying somebody off. The message, though, is, the message of the original construction is, the sea of nations is on the shoulders of Israel. If you put it on the ground and remove the oxen, then Israel is taken out of that picture. You still have, this, you still have a kind of representation of the nations, but it's no longer supported by Israel. Right. I mean, that's, that's the message that, that's the implied message, at least, of Ahaz. We're just like any other nation. We're not, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of arrogant. You know, I'm, 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 uh, I'm uh, reading this into Ahaz's attitude, but this is, this is the message that he's sending. It's kind of arrogant for us to think that the whole, the whole world depends on us. So I'll just remove those, that symbol of Israel holding up the nations. Uh, and I'm going to make, and this fits with other things Ahaz is doing. Ahaz is making the temple more like every other temple. He redesigns the altar. He's already taken gold and silver from the treasures of the temple. So um, Ahaz is uh, kind of reducing the status of Israel, and, uh, and he does that symbolically in the architecture of the temple. Okay. So... Uh, Again, I'll develop this in a second, but one of the ways that Israel holds up the nations is by, by maintaining the temple as a house of prayer for the Gentiles, for the nations. Uh, and that's Israel's job is to maintain that house so that it can be a place toward which not only Jews, but also Gentiles pray. I will talk about that more in a second. Uh, A.B., could you read from... Uh, uh, back up to verse 27 and then read to verse 39. Okay, thank you. All right, uh, so you have the sea. That's an innovation in the temple. That didn't exist in the tabernacle. These ten stands, as they're called, are also new. Uh, these ten stands include basins that are going to be full of water. That's uh, mentioned toward the end of the description. Ten of these things. So this is part of the water system of the temple. And just, uh, we could pause there and think about the significance of that by itself. If you go into the temple courts, you see a huge bronze sea. You see these 10 stands of water. Uh, there's, it's a, it's a well-watered place, uh, which is a, that's another part of the garden imagery. Uh, that phrase that I just used, well-watered place, is, is, comes from uh, Genesis 13 when Lot is looking to move towards Sodom. He decides to go towards Sodom because it's a well-watered place like the Garden of God. Eden had, for, had a river flowing through, Eden, a, a river flowed through the garden, and then it split into four rivers from the garden and goes out to the four corners. So Eden, the original Eden is a well-watered place, and you've got a temple court that has all these water features to it. So that by, that by just the, the, the abundance of the water is, a, is another hint of its link with Eden. Another hint that when you enter into the temple courts, you're entering into uh, God's, God's presence in a glorified architectural garden. So these are, these are not just basins of water, but these are basins that are placed on pretty complex structures that have several components uh, the basins would be up at the top of it, and then you have panels, four panels, that are carved, bronze panels, that are carved with lions, oxen, and cherubim. 
So these panels represent uh, angelic, the angelic figures of the cherubim that are kind of surrounding these basins. And then below the panels, you have wheels. So uh, it's, it's not clear whether these basins could be moved around by the wheels. Uh, maybe so, I'm not sure that they, I'm not sure the wheels would support because this is a, you've got a lot of water, you've got very heavy uh, panels. So uh, it's not clear that they were designed actually to be wheeled around, but at least they're representing a mobile water source. Okay. Water on wheels. <laughs> um, A sea is not water on wheels. You know, if it, water on wheels represents, would be a, a way of representing a river, a moving water source. And uh, so you have these 10 of these. It says that five are placed on the one side, five are placed on the other. Um, Set the stands, this is verse 39, five on the right side of the house, five on the left side of the house, and the sea eastward toward the south. Okay. So it's, uh, I think these 10 stands are set up as a kind of gauntlet, uh, face kind of uh, on either side of a, an entryway into the, into the temple. So you have one, two, three, four, five on one side of the, this is the doorway, five over here, five over here, you have these water basins that have wheels on them representing flowing water. The sea is not flowing water. The sea is a reservoir. But the sea with the water stands represents a water source, the sea, and water uh, 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 and, uh, and a spring or a river flowing from the source. Okay. So, uh, what, what do you, what, what's the message about Israel if that's the way that this is uh, set up? The message about the temple. Yes. Okay. Can, yes. The, the temple, which represents Israel, is a source of living water for the nations. It's another Eden with rivers flowing out. It doesn't have, actually have a river flowing out, but it has this symbolic, these two symbolic rivers flowing out. If you're familiar with Ezekiel's vision of the temple, at the end of his temple vision in Ezekiel 47, he sees water bubbling up from the inner sanctuary, the holy, most holy place, flowing out under the doorway, flowing out through the court, flowing out to the land, refreshing the land, plants start growing, trees of life start growing, flows all the way out to the dead sea and refreshes it and makes the fish come back to life. Okay. What Ezekiel is envisioning is the life of God flowing from the house of God, refreshing the land, which is Israel, and also re renewing and re enlivening the sea, which is the Gentiles. But that vision is already architecturally represented in Solomon's temple. Uh, the temple is not just a reservoir of water. It's supposed to be a, a source from which water flows. Okay. 
So uh, that's, one, that's one side of it. Um, so that, again, is, is saying something about Israel's role in the world. Israel is the people that bears the nations on their shoulders, bears responsibility for the nations. They are priests to the nations that have the heavenly waters, the blessings of God. They're mediators of the blessings of God to the nations. Israel is also supposed to be a spring of living water that flows out to the Gentiles and brings them to life. Now think about it the other way. <clears throat> you have the doorway. You have five stands of water on either side of a pathway. You're an Israelite, and you're walking toward the altar where you're going to offer your sacrifice. And as you do, you're passing between these water stands. Make you ring any bells? Israel ever pass through the midst of water? Right. It's an exodus. It's an exodus image. It's crossing into the crossing the Jordan into the land. Every time you go to the temple to offer sacrifice, is that like you're renewing the exodus? You're passing between these this, this symbolic water walls. You're going up to the altar. This is a, a small mountain, and your animal's going to go to the top of that mountain and be transformed to smoke to go up and to uh, uh, be a, a sweet-smelling savor in the Lord's nostrils. You're reenacting that whole sequence as a worshiper. Okay. So the, the symbolism of the water, I think, goes both ways. On the one hand, it's water flowing out from the temple and from the people of God. It's also... Uh, the passageway back in. You're, also, you're passing between the water. It's also an image of cleansing, right? You're, you're not actually being sprinkled with water, but you're passing through the water, and uh, that's, a, that's a, a purification, act of purification. Okay. So uh, those are some of the features. There are other features of the temple that are described here, but those are some of the features, and I hope that helps you at least start thinking of ways that the architecture could embody the mission and the calling of Israel. There are a couple of other things I want to say about the temple uh, that are innovative things in the temple that are beyond, above and beyond the um, tabernacle. Uh, glance, glance, we won't read it, but glance at 1 Kings 8. And just kind of skim through, you have the assembly. This is after the temple has been built. You have the assembly of the elders of Israel and all the people, uh, and they're there to dedicate the house, to consecrate the house. And they're offering offerings and sacrifices. But 1 Kings 8 is mostly made up of what? Toward the end, we find out Solomon is offering 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. For sacrifices, that's, that's how the tabernacle is dedicated, through sacrifices. But what does 1 Kings 8 mostly consist of? Prayer. It's a prayer. Uh, you probably have read this before and thought about it. What is the prayer about? Good, exactly, right. So, and he goes through a series of crises that Israel might face. Famine, pestilence, defeat in, in war, exile, 
And it, each time, the petition is, when we turn toward this house, here in heaven, and answer. Okay. So uh, the, uh, the temple is, uh, is kind of a, a, a I mean, this is, a, this is an old-fashioned thing. But at one time, when telephones first existed, there were offices where people had to connect. I don't know, maybe you've seen it on old movies, you know. Somebody in the, in the back room, it connects this person calling this person, and you've got the telephone exchange that connects this to this. The temple is kind of that exchange point where Israel can pray toward the house and God will hear in heaven. That's the, Solomon's prayer is a, about Israel's future prayer. It's all about God, please God, hear when we call on you praying toward this house. Uh, and it's, uh, the, organ, the prayer is organized so that it starts, uh, and particularly in, in the parallel passage in Chronicles, you see this. Uh, when we come into your presence and call on you, hear us. If we're in the land and we call on you, hear us. If there are strangers or Gentiles who call on you and pray toward this house, hear them. If we're in exile, no matter how far away we get, hear. Okay. And the Lord promises... This is uh, in 1 Kings 9. I have heard your prayer, uh, 1 Kings 9, 3, and your supplications which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built by putting my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. His eyes will be on the house. His ears will be attuned to the house. He will hear and respond. No matter what Israel faces, the temple is where they turn, and they turn in prayer so that God would heal them. So the temple, Solomon's temple, is a house of prayer and includes the nations, a house of prayer for all nations. Israel is the caretaker of the house of prayer. But all the nations, if they will turn to the house, they can pray, and, uh, and he, God will hear. Now look at verse 41 of 1 Kings 8. Concerning the foreigner who is not of thy people Israel, when he comes from a far country for thy name's sake, verse 43, hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place and do according to all that the foreigner calls to thee. It's not just a house for Israel. When Jesus says, uh, or I, he's quoting Isaiah when he says, uh, this house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. Uh, he's quoting Isaiah, but that wasn't an idea that started with Isaiah. It starts with Solomon's, Solomon's prayer. Prayer becomes something much more, pro it's, it's much more prominent in the temple dedication. There are apparently no prayers, as far as we know, there were no prayers at the, dedication of, at the dedication of the tabernacle. At least no prayers recorded. But the temple is a house of prayer. It's still a house of sacrifice, but now in addition to that, it's become a house of prayer. Now, let's think about how that develops in the history of Israel. Solomon says, If a man sins against his neighbor, forgive him if he prays toward this house. When your people are defeated before an enemy, hear us when we pray toward this house. When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain, when we pray toward this house, hear us. If there's famine, pestilence, blight, mildew, hear us when we pray toward this house. If we go in and battle against our enemy, hear us when we pray toward this house. All of those things happen in the history of, that's recorded in Kings. 
Israel has enemies that defeat them. They have drought. They have famine. They have pestilence. They lose battles. And how many times do you think they pray toward the house? Okay, that's right. That's once they're in exile. Good. Daniel is praying toward Jerusalem from exile, which is the same principle here. He's praying toward the house. Interesting, interesting to realize he's praying toward a temple that's in ruins, but he still thinks the Lord will hear, and the Lord does hear. Good. But how about in Kings? How many times in Kings does anybody take advantage of this? One time. Anybody remember who it is? One king. Hezekiah, right. When? Great. It's the siege of Sennacherib. And Hezekiah goes into the temple, lays a letter before the Lord, and asks the Lord to deliver them. And it works. You know, God scatters the Assyrians, sends them back home, kills 185,000 of them in one night. That's the only time in Kings that anybody prays toward the house or in the house. Kings go into the temple all the time. But mostly they go into the temple, like I said before, to plunder it. When an enemy comes, according to Solomon's prayer, when an enemy invades, what they should do is direct their prayers toward the house. What they generally do instead is to go into the house, strip off some gold, pay off the invader, so he'll leave, which just you know encourages them to come back for more later. Doesn't work for very long. And it also, they never use the temple. Only Hezekiah. Is the, Hezekiah is the only one that ever used the temple for the reason, for the, the purpose for which it was built as a house of prayer. He's the only one. Uh, even though the, the, the temple, uh, God, God promises that he will hear every prayer that's prayed toward that temple. Of course, it requires repentance. It requires trust in God. It's not, it's not automatic any more than the sacrifice is automatic. If my people will humble themselves and pray. That's the... That's from 2 Samuel, 2 Chronicles 7, the version in Chronicles of this prayer. Uh, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, that I imagine you all know. Okay. Um, they have not because they ask not. That's one of the themes of kings. They don't get delivered because they don't ask to be delivered. And the temple doesn't protect them and rescue them because they don't use the temple the way it's designed to be used, which is as a place of prayer. Um, How would we think about this in the New Covenant? Is there a temple toward which we direct our prayers? Yeah. I mean, the answer to every theological question. Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Jesus is the living temple. And I think everything that is said about Solomon's temple 
we should, we should think about how that applies in our prayers to Jesus. If we're in any kind of circumstance, of diff, any kind of difficulty, Jesus, the Father promises to hear as we pray in the name of Jesus toward the temple, the living temple that is Jesus. He's the bearer of the name and the Father promises to hear, whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give it to you. And again, uh, as uh, James says, we have not because we ask not. That's, that's one of the uh, quite striking messages of Kings. We've got this, got this great setup, but we're, we've got to make use of it. Okay. One other thing I want to highlight about the temple that's uh, a, an innovation over the tabernacle. The temple is a house of prayer. It's still a house of sacrifice. All the sacrifices that took place at the tabernacle are also taking place at the temple. All the stuff in Leviticus that talks about sacrifices still applies to the temple. But now you have this added layer of prayer. And then Chronicles introduces another layer, which has to do with song. From what we can tell in Exodus and Leviticus, the worship of Israel at the tabernacle was conducted in silence. I probably wasn't, in fact. But there are no prescribed words that you say at the, at when you offer sacrifice. There are times when, uh, the, when, the, when the high priest offers the, uh, the goat as a scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. He confesses the sins and uncleannesses of Israel on the head of the scapegoat. So he says something. But if you, if you read through the sacrificial rituals in the early chapters of Leviticus, it doesn't say anything about, say, about speech. There's only one musical instrument that's, in, that's used at the tabernacle, and that's the silver trumpets. And the silver trumpets are not, used, they're not used during the worship of the tabernacle. They're used to summon people to the tabernacle. They're used to, to uh, alert people that they're moving on from one camp and moving on to the next camp. But then once David builds, uh, it's, it, before the temple is built, David is reorganizing the priests and the Levites and creating a Levitical choir and orchestra that will offer musical praise to God at the temple. First uh, Chronicles 25, I'll just read a bit of this to give you the flavor of it. David, the commanders of the army, set apart for the service some of the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jedathan who were to prophesy with lyres, harps, and cymbals. And the number of those who performed their service was of the sons of Asaph, and then it has a list of them, and so on. I'm not going to read all those uh, names. Verse 6, all these under the hand of their father to sing in the house of the Lord with cymbals and harps and lyres for the service of the house of God. Asaph, Jedathan, and Heman were under the hand of the king. And the number of those who were trained in singing to the Lord with their brothers, all who were skillful, was 288. And then it goes on to list the groups, uh, the different groups of Levites under different uh, clans, 24 different clans, each one of them having 12 uh, members. Uh, and that makes up the 288 member uh, uh, choir and orchestra. They're to prophesy. That's in this context, prophesy means to sing. And they're prophesy with lyres, harps, and cymbals. So the musical instruments. David invents musical instruments that are used at the temple. 
David writes the Psalms, many of the Psalms that are used at the temple that, after his lifetime. And as we look through Chronicles, it doesn't come out in Kings so much, but as we look through Chronicles, we find that when Israel worships through animal sacrifice, they're simultaneously, the Levites at least, are simultaneously offering musical praise to God. So along with the animal sacrifice, there's a sacrifice of breath, a sacrifice of praise that accompanies that. And within Chronicles, you also have an, a transfer of sacrificial language from animal sacrifice to music. Uh, there's a, the, the music, musical offerings in the temp, temple are described as a kind, as a kind of sacrifice. So uh, that's, that's something new. Uh, and uh, I think it, you know, that gives us some things to think about as far as the, the, uh, the importance of uh, music in, in our worship. Uh, we are the temple of the living God. Uh, Jesus Christ is the temple. He's the house of prayer. He's the chief singer. We're united to him. Uh, and so uh, we are in him. We are the temple. Uh, we are a house of prayer. And we're a house of song. And our worship should be filled with sacrifices of praise. Yeah, I think the, the closest thing we can get to a, a visualization of, heavenly, of heaven is the vision in a, a Revelation 4 and 5. And what it's, what it's, you're exactly right. What John sees is a, uh, the original version of the temple. With the throne of God, the sea, there's thrones for the cherubim, uh, thrones for the, the ancient ones, the, uh, the uh, priests, the heavenly priests. Uh, yeah, I think it's, it's uh, if, if I could be more specific, if I would say uh, that heaven is the, uh, would be uh, the original of which the most holy place is the copy. Heaven is the most holy place of the cosmos. Where the, God, where the Lord's throne is. Yeah, that's, yeah, that, uh, uh, that's an interesting... Uh, I have to think about the, the Philistines. It's, it's interesting because when the ark comes back to Israel, it comes back to Beth Shemesh, and some of the men of Beth Shemesh look at the ark or in the ark, it's the Hebrew is ambiguous, and a bunch of them die. The Philistines are getting plagues, but they don't die just by handling the ark, but the Israelites do. So there's, there's some kind of higher... Well, yeah, here's another example. I think there's a higher s standard of uh, care for the ark for Israel. Uh, when the Philistines send back the ark, they send it on a cart. Okay. Later on, David tries to take the ark into Jerusalem on a cart, and it gets upset, and the guy reaches out and touches it and kills it, Uzzah. And uh, part of the problem is that it's not supposed to be transported on a cart. The, the priests are supposed to carry it on their shoulders. But the Philistines get away with it. So I think there's a higher standard for Israelites in handling the ark than there is for the Gentiles. But there's a, yeah, the, the, the uh, development of the ark in, uh, in later, Israel's later history, um, I can't remember the chapter, but in, in uh, Jeremiah somewhere, uh, he says something along the lines of, you will no longer say the ark of the Lord. I should look it up because I... I want to get this right. There seems to be a, uh, an expanded idea of the ark, or the ark as, it, as an object loses its centrality 
And the passage I'm thinking of in Jeremiah, is it Jeremiah 7? Uh, that was the, my first thought, but that didn't seem right. But Okay. Jeremiah 3. Okay, there it is. It's Jeremiah 3. Uh, I'm breaking in the middle. Uh, Jeremiah 3.16 it shall be in those days when you, are uh, when you are multiplied and increased in the land, declares the Lord. They shall no longer, no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they miss it, nor shall it be made again. Sounds like it was destroyed. At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of Yahweh, and all nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem, for the name of Yahweh. Nor shall they walk anymore after the stubbornness of their evil heart. So that seems to be saying that the ark has somehow expanded into the city. The city becomes the throne of God, the way the ark was in the earlier part of Israel's history. Um, and I think that there's, there are other indications in the, uh, in the Old Testament that Jerusalem takes on an elevated status after exile. It becomes a holy city in a way that it wasn't before. So I, uh, how that fits into priest-king prophet, I'd have to think more about. Yeah, well, well, there's a couple ways that, a couple things that, I, uh, a couple responses to that. I don't know if these all fit into coherent response, but uh, in the, <clears throat> on the small scale, if you're looking at the early chapters of Samuel, that's certainly the theme. The glory is departing. I mean, that, that phrase is used after the ark is captured. Uh, one of, I don't remember which, Hophnire finished, his wife gives birth. And she names her son Ichabod, the glory has departed. So that, that's definitely a theme in those chapters. Um, but, uh, and I think overall, I'd, uh, 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 but another, another, another item in that series of thoughts is that David, David shows a lot of concern for the ark. He wants to bring the ark into Jerusalem. He wants the Lord's throne to be in Jerusalem because that's the, that's the city that the Lord has chosen. Uh, and then the ark, the ark has a, has a pretty major role in the early part of David's reign. It's brought into the temple. That's the climax of the temple construction is when the ark is brought in. Um, so it, it, it regains its prominence. Um, but I think uh, the glory is departing in one sense from the temple. I think the other part of it is this Jeremiah 3 idea that uh, the object loses its significance partly because the significance and power and holiness of the ark itself is expanding and encompassing. Now, Jerusalem is the throne of God. And then you could say in the New Covenant, uh, we are the, th we, we constitute the throne of God. Uh, we, we lift up the Lord on our praises. The Lord is enthroned in the midst of us. So the people of God constitute the throne of God. So it's not so much that it diminishes as that it, it diminishes as a single object because its power is expanding more widely.